This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Chakram With one deft flick of her wrist, the swarthy-skinned monk looses one of the strange bracelets into the palm of her hand. As she clasps it between her thumb and forefinger, you see that it is not jewelry at all. It's a finely serrated ring of steel, impossibly flat. She smiles at you and takes the measure of one of the knolls charging across the field. She swings the blade at it and watches as it whirls silently through the air. The knoll barely has time to see it coming. The spinning ring of death buries itself in the creature's throat in a spray of blood. It gurgles and collapses mid-charge. Your mysterious new friend smiles and readies another one of her throwing rings. Chakram, she smirks. Later on, to your embarrassment, you learn that she was giving you the name of the weapon and not her own. Speaking of throwing weapons with apparently mystical powers, yeah, we probably shouldn't start with a segue like that, but we were speaking of throwing weapons with apparently mystical powers. Last week, remember? Boomerangs and rabbit sticks and napkiris? Right. Anyway, speaking of throwing weapons with apparently mystical powers, let's talk about fantasy in popular culture. The thing is, fantasy, you know, swords, sorcery, gods, dragons, monsters, heroes, and so forth, fantasy should make for awesome TV shows and movies. But if you look over the long term, fantasy on TV and in movies seems to come and go. Interest in it waxes and wanes. Some years ago, interest in fantasy was riding particularly high when a highly successful fantasy series filmed in New Zealand really caught on. And the series involved an ensemble cast of fun heroes and a magical ring. That's right. We're talking about Xena, Warrior Princess. Actually, there were two awesome fantasy series filmed in New Zealand. Xena, starring Lucy Lawless and Renee O'Connor, was a spin-off of another successful fantasy series. Hercules The Legendary Journeys starred Kevin Sorbo, who went on to ruin Star Trek forever. Both shows became the highest-rated syndicated television shows of their times. Hercules held the title only until Xena surpassed it. Both series were ostensibly based on Greco-Roman mythology. Hercules is, of course, the Roman name of the Greek hero Heracles. But no one ever gets that right, not even Disney. And Xena was, well, she was made up for a three-episode run of the Hercules show and slated to die. But the character proved to be so popular They invented a backstory for her and gave her her own show and her own comic relief buddy. The thing is, the shows were what we in the business of complaining about pop culture call an anachronism stew. 
They were a gigantic mishmash of every bit of mythology you could imagine, set against the backdrop of things that looked kind of like actual historical events, set in countries that were suspiciously similar to countries you can find on an actual map. I mean, Xena fought in the Trojan War, and they got crucified by Julius Caesar. Roughly speaking, that would be like having a character jailed by President Barack Obama for their involvement in the First Crusade. But whatever, they were fun. One of the most memorable things about Xena, though, apart from her battle cry of, yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> 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 Yeah, we we can't do that. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> oh. <coughs> Apart from her battle cry, one of the most memorable things about Xena was her signature weapon, the chakram. Xena's chakram was basically a decorated metal ring with a bladed outer edge. She threw it like a frisbee while shrieking it while shrieking her battle cry. It would spin around and cut through people in armor in a strangely bloodless way, because this was network television. And then it would come back to her, like a boomerang. The thing is, the chakram almost ended up being a throwaway paragraph in the boomerang episode. We were going to point out how it didn't return either, and leave it at that. But that would be selling the chakram kind of short, because the chakram is a very real, very unique weapon. Unlike things like swords and boomerangs that every culture eventually figured out how to make, the chakram is pretty unique. First, let's talk about Xena's chakram. In the Xenoverse, there were once two legendary magical weapons, the light chakram and the dark chakram. They were mystical weapons and protected by Kal, a war god who didn't get along with Ares at all. Kal was the war god of Italia in the series. Before the series started, Xena, an Amazonian warrior, had gone into exile and wandered through the far-off nations of Chin and Joppa and Norseland. And while she was on her way to Norseland to hang with Odin, Ares stole the dark chakram and gave it to her. Eventually, the light and the dark chakram were combined into the balanced chakram, or yin and yang chakram, because of its iconic appearance as a razor-sharp ring with a sinuous S-shaped handle in the middle. So what myth is all this from? Is the chakram Italian, Chinese, Japanese, Norse, Greek? It's none of them. I mean, none of this is even close. Not even a little tiny bit. There is nothing in that story that has anything to do with the actual chakram. Which is a shame, because the actual chakram has some pretty cool history of its own. Indian history, from India. The one culture and nation not even remotely hinted at in the above story, except insofar as it might be on the way between China and Norseland if you took a really, really long scenic route. The chakram is a flat metal ring with a sharpened outer edge. It's generally about 6 to 12 inches in diameter. The name derives from the Sanskrit word for circle, chalakar. And when it was encountered by Europeans, it was given the name warquoit, 
in English after the European ring-tossing game Quoits. The chakram was a throwing weapon, primarily, and it was thrown in one of two ways. First, it was gripped carefully between the thumb and two fingers and flung horizontally like a frisbee. Second, it was whirled around one finger like a hula hoop on a finger puppet and then unleashed once it was spinning fast enough. Because of the flattened shape and the spin, the chakram would fly nice and straight and level over long distances, and then it would embed itself into whatever it hit. Embed itself deeply, just like a curved sword gains a lot of cutting power, so does a curved blade. It was an extremely effective weapon. The first chakra was the Sudarshana chakra, which was a serrated disc with exactly 108 serrations. It was the weapon of Vishnu, the supreme Hindu deity, and traditional depictions of the four-armed blue-skinned deity show him holding it along with a lotus flower, a mace, and a conch. The Sudarshana chakra was described in both of the major Sanskrit epic poems of India, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. One of the nicknames for Krishna, an incarnation of Vishnu, is Chakradhari, which means man with a circle. Warriors who wielded chakram often wore several of them around their wrists or arms, or around a high conical hat or helmet. In fact, some of them wore smaller chakri around their wrists. These were just small chakram that, in addition to being thrown, could be used effectively like knuckle dusters in close combat. And it was this practice, the practice of wearing chakram around the arms or around high conical turbans, that led to the chakram becoming an icon of the Sikh warriors. See, although the chakram may have been in use as early as the 2nd century BCE, and although it did spread from India into other parts of Southeast Asia, including Tibet and Indonesia, it became most famously associated with the Sikh warriors of the 15th and 16th centuries. And who were the Sikh warriors? Well, they were devotees of Sikhism, a faith espousing equality, inclusion, charity, mercy, kindness, and being really badass on the battlefield. Okay, while that is an amusing juxtaposition, it's not the whole story. First, Sikhism. In the year 1469, in a small village in what we now call Pakistan, Nanak Dev, the 28-year-old unemployed son of Hindu merchants, went down to the river to have a bath. He was gone for three days. And when he came back, he said he had been filled with the Spirit of God and had realized that there was no such thing as Hindus or Muslims. There were just people and all people were basically equal. What you have to understand is that India, Pakistan, and the whole of the Indian subcontinent have been, at many times in their history, rent by religious violence between those of the Hindu faith and those of the Islamic faith. And a lot of this conflict has played out in the Punjab region of northern India and eastern Pakistan. This region serves as sort of a gateway to the Indian subcontinent. So, if you're going to invade the subcontinent, you're probably coming through Punjab. And thus, the Punjab region 
has been invaded countless times throughout history. In addition to that, Hinduism includes the concept of a caste system. Essentially, you are born into a particular class or social level, and your interactions with other classes are restricted based on your own. Throughout various times in Indian history, the caste system has been rigidly enforced, and thus your caste could also define your legal and social rights. Many modern Indians consider the caste system and its rigid enforcement to be something of an embarrassment, and the Indian government has been taking extensive steps to dismantle this system. But many still see discrimination based on caste as an ongoing problem. Now, we're not here to comment on the social aspects of other cultures. We're just trying to give the historical context for Nanak Dev's pronouncement. The idea of equality between different social classes and different religions was a shocking idea at that time and in that particular corner of the world. Nanak Dev became known as Guru Nanak, Guru being a Sanskrit word for teacher, and he became the first of the ten gurus of Sikhism. Guru Nanak attracted numerous students, and he taught them there was just one God and that the way to meet that God was to be kind charitable, to do good deeds, and to treat all people as equal. He instituted the idea of the common meal, that Hindus and Muslims of all different social classes should all eat meals at the same table together. And these ideas became the foundation for Sikhism, which is now the fifth most popular religion in the world. So, how do you get some of the most amazing warriors ever out of that? Well, that happened for two reasons. First of all, Nanak wasn't really starting his own religion when this got started. He didn't care if you were a Hindu or a Muslim or whatever. As long as you did good things and treated people well and treated all people equally, you were welcome as one of his students or followers. And what happened was that among his pupils were members of the Hindu Kshatriya caste. This was the military caste, the guardians of society. They had a dharma, a duty, to train in combat and to protect their society. Nanak himself may have had such training. And his successor, Guru Engad Dev, certainly did. So among the teachings of Sikhism, there came the idea of training the body physically, mentally, and spiritually. And that is how Gatka, one of the traditional Indian martial arts, became associated with Sikhism. But that wasn't all. Remember that whole thing about the Punjab region basically being a big old target for invasion? Well, round about the time Sikhism was really starting to take off, the Mughal Empire was starting to spread across India. The Mughals were a Muslim dynasty descended from Persian Muslims. And as they spread across India under Akbar the Great, the Sikhs were among those who opposed their rule. Later on, the 10th guru of Sikhism, Guru Gobind Singh, helped galvanize the Sikh warrior spirit when he resisted both the Mughal and Hindu oppression. He himself was an accomplished warrior who was renowned for using the sword, bow, chakram, dagger, and the rifle. This was the late 1600s, by the way. Rifles were a thing. 
He espoused the idea of a warrior saint, a morally upstanding and virtuous protector of society and fighter against tyranny. And he decreed that the Sikh community will love their weapons of war, be excellent horsemen and marksmen and swordsmen, and master the chakram and the spear. Physical prowess is as sacred as spiritual sensitivity. In the end, he founded the Khalsa, a Sikh brotherhood whose goals were to fight oppression, defend freedom of religion, and help the poor. It was during the Anglo-Sikh wars of the 1800s when the Sikhs and their allies opposed British colonials in India that the iconic image of the Sikh warrior really took hold. So, how can you use all of this in your game? Well, chakram are cool. They are basically powerful exotic throwing knives. They don't come back though, just like boomerangs don't. So you can add Chakram to your game easily enough. But the story of the Chakram, first as a weapon of the gods, and then as a weapon associated with a particular warrior caste, is also very inspiring. Too often, the weapons on the weapon list are just dice codes and statistics. But there were real weapons in the world, like the Katana and the Chakram, that were symbolic of something particular things that only certain warriors used and that became famous through their association with particular groups or societies or castes. D&D 3.5 tried to do this with the idea of racial weapons like the Dwarven War Axe and the Orcish Double Axe. But they were so freely available and it was so easy to acquire the proficiencies that they lost all of their symbolic significance. You might also think that the warrior seeks and not all Sikhs are warriors. The warrior seeks emphasis on martial skill as a way of perfecting the body and the mind and as a way to do their righteous duty might make them an excellent inspiration for monks in D&D. But that would be unfair. Because among the other teachings of Sikhism, one is that Sikhs must live among the people. No monasteries, no hidden shrines far away from the world. Sikhs are no better than anyone else. They need to be in the real world, doing real good every day to be true to their faith. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and madadventurers.com